Morning. Good to see you all and to have this opportunity to open up God's Word. just want to ask you to join me again one more time in a brief word of prayer as we begin. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how we love your law. It is our meditation all the day. Your commandments make us wiser than those who don't trust in you. We pray that your commandments would always be with us on our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our study today in 1 Peter. So if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on page 1014. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 6 and 7 today. I've been reading through 1 Peter each morning as part of my uh, quiet time and prep for this series, and one of the big benefits of reading a book in its entirety is, uh, uh, and reading it over and over again, is that the big themes of the book you know, start to rise to the surface. They become a little bit easier to identify as you read it over and over again. And I'm sure I'm not saying anything new that others haven't said or thought about the book of uh, 1 Peter or even pointed out, but the two big related themes that I've seen that repeatedly rise to the surface of 1 Peter are suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. If we follow Jesus, our lives will follow the same pattern as his. Suffering will precede glory. Might even go so far as to say that's the big idea of 1 Peter. If you wanted a theme of what 1 Peter is all about, suffering precedes glory or the cross comes before the crown. And we really get our first introduction to that idea in verses 6 and 7. So let me go ahead and read those verses for us, and then we'll consider what we learn from them. That's, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are four lessons that I want us to draw out from these verses on suffering. And those four lessons are the reality of suffering, the response to suffering, a reason for suffering, and the resolution of suffering. The four R's of suffering that I want us to see. Reality, response, reason, and resolution. So first, look at me about the, the, see what we learned here about the reality of suffering. I realize it's going to sound obvious to probably all of you, but I want to be sure to say it so that we're all on the same page. Christians should expect to suffer. Look again at verse six with me. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If you follow Jesus, you should expect to experience all sorts of trials, difficulties, hardships, and suffering throughout the course of your life, right? Following Jesus isn't like a 
tax exemption, right? Where depending on your filing status, you may be able to claim an exemptions, uh, an exemption for a portion of your income or revenue, right? Becoming a Christian doesn't give you a new filing status with God in which you are now exempt from experiencing trials, hardship, and difficulty. In fact, it can actually be the opposite, that when you start to follow Jesus, you start to have all sorts of trials, hardships, and difficulties enter into your life in a way that they weren't in there before. It seems like following Jesus causes our trials and hardships to ramp up, and there's all sorts of reasons for that, right? Satan is now coming at you with all that he's got, right? Before, he didn't have to kind of afflict you or do anything to bother you. You didn't, you didn't believe in Jesus. You were where Satan wanted you to be. Now that you are following Jesus, Satan's like, I'm going to try to do everything I can to get that person to no longer follow Jesus, so I'm going to bring all sorts of affliction into his life. Think about the ways that he afflicted Job. It gives you a good idea of the range of possibilities that, uh, or the range of weaponry that Satan works with. You also become more aware of your own struggles with sin, and you feel like you're constantly engaged with the flesh to put it to death, and God sovereignly brings trials. I don't want to get ahead of myself, though. We're going to touch on that in a little bit. We just want to acknowledge that, that hardship and difficulty is a part of the Christian life. If you're newer to the faith, or growing in understanding what it means to be a Christian, you need to be prepared for this. Often, God kindly gives newer Christians a, a bit of a, a grace period. I'm not going to say this happens across the board, but there's often a grace period that follows true and genuine belief in Jesus, where it's just all flowers and butterflies. The sun is shining. Your joy meter is filled up and everything is going well. You're just like, I can't believe what God has done for me. And life is going well, right? If you think of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress before, after his burden falls off at the cross, Christian immediately comes to a place of peace and rest. And then he meets with interpreter, an interpreter tells him about the dangerous path that he's about to embark upon. But then when he embarks upon the path, he sees that there's a wall that's been built up on each side of the path. And he says to the interpreter, what's the deal with the wall? And the interpreter's like, there's going to be a little bit of time where you're being protected from some things. But just know, the wall eventually comes to, the, comes to an end, and there's a whole long path ahead of that where there are no protections on either side, where afflictions and trials and hardships may come into your life. God may kindly give you a grace period, but eventually, trials will come. Following Jesus entails hardship. Whoever wants to come after me must take up his cross daily and follow me. It's through many trials and tribulations that we will enter the kingdom. Whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, experience hardship, I also want to highlight that because there are pastors and teachers who call themselves Christians who teach that if we're suffering as Christians, the fault is with us. It means that our faith is defective or it's not strong enough or we're not believing hard enough. If we were believing hard enough, we wouldn't be experiencing the trials and hardships and difficulties that we are experiencing. If we had enough faith, we could just say to our suffering, be gone, and it would be gone. The problem with that kind of teaching is the entire Bible. Literally, 
The whole Bible shows us that God's people, God's chosen and beloved people suffer. Sometimes from their own bad decisions, not what we're talking about today, but often for no fault of their own. God's people experience many trials and many different kinds of trials. Look again at verse 6. Peter says at the end, you have been grieved by various trials. That word various refers both to number and kind. There are various trials, meaning there may be many of them, and various in that there may be many different kinds of them. The types of trials that Peter has foremost on his mind in this letter are the insults, mocking, opposition, and persecution these Christians were facing, but those aren't the only types of trials and suffering he's referring to. Gathered up into that word are all the different types of suffering and trials that God's, God's people experience throughout Scripture. Think of Abraham and Sarah pleading with God for decades for a child of their own. Hardship. Think of Jacob being taken advantage of by his boss and uncle. Think of Leah, whose husband hated her. Think of Joseph being left for dead by his brothers. The people of Israel being enslaved in Egypt. Job losing everything in a single day. Elijah suffering from terrible spiritual depression. What about you? What various trials might you be experiencing today? Maybe the grief-filled loneliness of losing a spouse. The weariness of dealing with chronic illness and pain. The constant conflict and, and hardship of having bad relationships at work. Not being welcomed by students at school. Uh, dealing with learning disabilities. Caring for ailing parents. Being laid off from work and not knowing how you're going to pay the bills. All of these and more are examples of the various trials we may experience in life. We need to be reminded today of the reality of suffering and be prepared for the many different times and ways we may encounter suffering. But I also want us to see, point two, the response to suffering. And what I'm referring to here is how we should respond to trials, hardship, difficulty, and suffering when they come upon us. And the first way that we respond is by grieving. Look again at the end of verse 6. Peter says, you have been grieved by various trials. Because all too often, Christians can wrongly interpret commands to rejoice always as meaning we need to always act happy. Life is good. I'm barely holding it all together, but I'm, I'm choosing to rejoice always, right? And that something's wrong with us if we're letting suffering get to us. But that's not what Scripture is teaching when it teaches us to rejoice always. Think of Paul, who talked about despairing of life itself because of the hardship he was experiencing. Or Job, who responds to his suffering by tearing his clothing, falling on the ground and weeping. Or Jesus, who weeps at Lazarus's tomb, responding to suffering in the world with sadness sorrow, tears, and grief, it's like the most human thing we can do. Uh, while I was working on the sermon, I decided to pull out my phone. You, I, I'm not going to encourage you to do this now, but you could do this right now. 
I pulled out my phone and I asked Siri, Siri, what ways are you suffering? Siri, what ways are you discontent? Siri, what, what type of trials are you experiencing? And to each of the questions, she, res- she responded with that, that kind of nice, kind, very robotic voice, I'm not sure I understand. It's like, of course you don't, Siri, because you're not a human. If you were a human, you would understand. Because grief is a normal part of the human and Christian experience in a fallen world. Right after all, Christians follow Jesus, who Isaiah called the man of sorrows, who was well acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, both because of the suffering he experienced and in response to the suffering he experienced around him and his recognition of how wrong things had gone in the world. Friend, I wonder if you know that it's okay to be sad as a Christian. It's okay to be overcome with grief, cast down. You just think about all the different images and words used to to describe weeping and sadness and grief at the suffering we may be experiencing, the suffering we see around us, or the suffering that we will eventually experience in life. You, You don't have to hold it all together all the time. That's not what Jesus is calling you to. My hope for this church is that we would be the type of people who openly share about the hardships we're experiencing and then who respond to hearing about those hardships by coming alongside those who are suffering and and grieving with those who grieve, right? Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. We want to come alongside one another and pray with each other and grieve with each other. Uh, When I was younger, I saw uh, the movie Monty Python's The Holy Grail. Not sure if any of you have seen it. Again, not recommending it. Like I talked about Dodgeball last week. Not recommending these movies. But in Monty Python and The Holy Grail, there is a scene where two knights are facing off against one another. And it's a comedy. It's a British comedy. So it's very dry, very sarcastic. It's not gory. So what I'm about to say, don't be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you watched it, right? So one night chops the arm off of another knight. And then that knight is like, tis merely a flesh wound. And then he chops the other arm off of him. He's like, tis but a scratch. And you're like, no, come on, man. You just got your arms hacked off. That's not a flesh wound or a scratch. That's a bit what Christians are like when we have real trials come into our life and we're just like, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Tis but a scratch. Tis but a flesh wound. You're like, no, no, dude. Your arm just got hacked off. That is not a flesh wound. When we're experiencing trials, now there may be flesh wounds and scratches in, 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 in using that as an illustration of hardships. There are smaller ones. But when we experience harder ones and we try to say, you know, I'm, do- I'm doing fine, I'm, I'm good. That's not the way that we want to interact with one another. That, that teaches other Christians who might not know better, like, okay, I guess being a part of this church means I just got to act like everything's okay when it's not okay. That's not what we want to do here. We're not okay, often, right? Often we are not feeling well. We're not responding well to the trials that we're experiencing. We're hurting. We're broken. Got all sorts of hardships going on around us, and we want to share those with one another. So when people come up to you and, and talk to you, you, know, you don't want to be like that knight and just say, yeah, no, no, I'm fine. I, you know, I, it's, just, it's just a scratch, right? Open yourself up to others, right? Let them know, hey, I've, I've had a really tough week. I'm struggling right now. I've had this or that hard thing 
happen to me. Open yourself up to others and give them an opportunity to come alongside of you and weep with you as you weep. And by doing that, you're also giving them an opportunity to remind you of why you can also rejoice in the midst of your suffering. That, that's the paradoxical tension of these verses. We, we don't just grieve in response to suffering. We rejoice. Look again at the beginning of verse 6. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. In the midst of our suffering, we not only grieve, but we're also able to rejoice. Christians have real, solid reasons, a firm foundation for also being able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. What reasons do we have? Well, look again at what Peter says in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. In what, Peter? What does this refer to? If we asked him that question, I think Peter would, would respond to us by saying it refers to everything I've just said. From the fact that God chose you for salvation before the foundation of the world, to the fact that the Spirit has set you apart for salvation, to the fact that Jesus has cleansed you by his blood, to the fact that God has caused you to be born again, to the fact that he's given you a living hope through Jesus' resurrection, to the fact that he's given you a glorious and incorruptible inheritance, and to the fact that God has committed himself to guarding you through all of the trials and all of the sufferings and all of the difficulty of life, and he guarantees that you will receive that inheritance. Do you have reason to rejoice in the midst of difficulty and hardship, even while you grieve? Yes, you have all sorts of reasons to rejoice. In this you rejoice, in all of that wonderful news. The sufferings we experience in this life occur within the context of glorious and astounding realities that never cease to provide comfort and joy for the Christian even in the midst of intense suffering, right? When I was in the Coast Guard, the first unit that I was at after boot camp uh, was called a buoy tender. I was stationed on a boat where we maintained ocean buoys. And these buoys are gigantic things. They're just crazy, monstrous objects. The buoy itself was like 10 tons, weighed like 10 tons. It had about five to seven tons of chain connected to it. And then a 10-ton concrete block anchor on the bottom of the ocean connected to all of that gigantic heavy steelness. And these buoys were placed in very specific locations off the coast of Oregon because they're like, your, it's, it's what's telling boats where they need to drive. It's kind of like uh, the, stripes, the stripes on the road. And when storms would come, those buoys would be tossed around a super large area of the ocean. Basically, the circumference of the length of the chain. That, that chain would swing around a large area in the ocean. These storms would come, and the buoy would be tossed back and forth around this gigantic area. But inevitably, when the storm passed, the buoy always returned to the middle, where the anchor was. The truths of the gospel... The wonderful news of what God has done and is doing for us in Christ is like the chain and the concrete anchor keeping us grounded in joy even as we're tossed around by the storms of life. You see, friends, this is what makes Christianity unique among all the religions and all the worldviews that are present on earth, right? No other religion or worldview provides a satisfactory answer for suffering like Christianity, right? You think about the Eastern religions like Buddhism, they believe that suffering is an illusion. 
Uh, Secular Americans and Europeans would say that suffering, well, it's meaningless because life is meaningless, but only Christianity of the religions of the world says, no, it isn't an illusion. It is very real and terrible. Neither is it meaningless, but deeply meaningful. And you can know that God is intensely concerned for us as we experience suffering because God himself entered into human existence and shared in our suffering. He not only shared in our suffering, but endured terrible suffering for our sake. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life in our place, then died a horrible death on the cross that involved unbelievable amounts of suffering, but he did that for you and me. He suffered so that we might be made whole, forgiven, cleansed, and reconciled to God. Uh, Edward Shalito was a Christian and a soldier during the First World War, and in the wake of the close of the war, he wrote a poem entitled, Jesus of the Scars. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read this last stanza to you, where he writes, the other gods, and by that he means so-called gods, false gods, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble. To a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. And to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. If you're looking for an answer, God, I want to know why you have allowed suffering and trials. The Bible, God, he does not give that answer. He does not disclose that information uh, to his people. He didn't didn't disclose it to Job. Job came to him and was like, why has this happened? I'm going to put you on trial. And God was like, look at the amazing animals I've created, and where were you when I made the world? That was the answer he gave Job. Look at the hippo. What? What? I'm the God who created the hippo and the whole world. By the way, where were you when I made these things? He he doesn't tell us the concrete reason, but why you can know that God is for you and with you is because only a God who has wounds can speak to us. And, And no other God has wounds but him. He entered into creation. He suffered alongside of us, suffered more terribly than any of us will, and he suffered for us and for our salvation. That is why we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. In the midst of suffering, we tend to think that God is distant, unconcerned, hardened towards us, but nothing could be further from the truth. He says to us, I've been where you've been. I've walked where you've walked. In fact, I've suffered more deeply than you could ever imagine, and I did it for you. So no, you might not have the answer that you're looking for, but you can know that I understand what you are going for going through. I came to save you from your sins, to free you from condemnation, to release you from the judgment to come, and to give you the hope of everlasting life. Friends, that is why Christians can rejoice in the midst of suffering. To my non-Christian friends, just because you may not have that hope today doesn't mean you can't have that hope. Jesus offers himself to you today. If you come to him in faith, he'll give you this hope too. He'll make you a new creation. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll cleanse you from guilt and shame. And though you may continue to endure trials, 
you'll have the confidence of knowing these trials aren't meaningless, but are being used by God for a glorious purpose. And that brings us to point three, a reason for suffering. That is, why God allows us to experience trials, hardships, difficulties, and and so on, and what he's doing in it. And what Peter tells us is that God uses our trials to purify our faith. Look again at verse 7. We're grieved by various trials so that, for the purpose of the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter uses the refining process of gold as an illustration to describe what's happening to our faith when we experience hardship and, and affliction. And this is a, a remarkable comparison to make. I want you to consider how valuable gold is, right? From the beginning of human civilization... Until now, gold has been sought after and prized. Even today, it's regarded as a precious metal by investors. It's precious metal because of its universally recognized value. And Peter is saying, our faith is more precious than purely refined gold. But here's the thing. Gold doesn't come out of the ground in its final form. Right? Gold miners don't blast through rock only to find deposits of like, purified gold bars sitting there like, oh, perfect. I'm going to take these and put them in my bag. They find gold ore, and the gold ore needs to be refined. It has to go through an intense purification process, a purification process that, broadly speaking, involves lots of heat. The ore is heated to upwards of 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, and as the heat is turned up on the ore, what starts to happen? All of the impurities like zinc, Copper, silver, and iron start to separate from the gold, allowing refiners to to scrape or remove the impurities so that all that is left is pure, precious gold. And Peter says our faith, because it's more precious than gold, will likewise be subjected to the fire of trials and afflictions and hardships so that it can be purified like that gold. In that sense, our faith is like ore, gold ore. And over the course of our lives, God sovereignly ordains different hardships and affliction to turn up the heat on our faith in order to reveal and remove impurities. When we experience hardship, when we experience trials and suffering, we inevitably find impurities like impatience, anger, self-reliance, all mixed together in our faith. Or we may find idols like trusting too much in other people, trusting too much in our own wisdom, or in power, money, or reputation. The, The ore of our faith is filled with all sorts of idols and impurities, and God, in his kindness, carefully purifies us over the course of our lives. You even see his sovereign carefulness in his administration of trials in our lives hinted at in verse 6. Look again there with me. Peter says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. When it proves needful for our purification and growth in the faith, God uses trials for our good. 
It was John Newton who, once reflecting on this fact, said, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. From the minor and slightly uncomfortable trial to the severe test of affliction, whatever God sends, we can know it was necessary and that God is using it for a glorious purpose to purify our faith. Friends, I trust that if you look back at your life as a Christian and consider the various trials you've experienced, that you'll also be able to identify ways that God purified your faith through that trial. I've seen this in, uh, God do this in my own life, exposing things like fear of man, trusting in other people's opinions, and self-reliance. Honestly, for me, the one way that I have seen God purify my faith through the various trials that Leah and I have experienced is God showing us over and over again that he will be faithful and he will bring us through whatever we're facing. He teaches his people through constant repetition that he can be trusted, that he is faithful, and that he will walk with you through every trial. Think of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That's the main point of that story. Nebuchadnezzar throws them into a fiery furnace, and then God appears in the furnace with them, stands with them, and protects them. That's why the Lord says in Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt. Over and over again, God uses trials and hardships to teach his people that one truth. I will be with you. I will be with you. Relational trials. I will be with you and bring you through them. Work trials. I will be with you and bring you through them. Parenting trials. I will be with you and bring you through them. Emotional trials. I will be with you and bring you through them. Persecution trials. I will be with you and bring you through them. Health trials. I will be with you and bring you through them. Death itself. I will be with you and bring you through it. Kids and teens, this is so important for you guys to grasp. This is also why you don't need to fear experiencing trials. I realize it can sound daunting and even scary or just I have no idea what the pastor is even talking about right now. I can, I, I can understand though, once you start to grasp it, it can sound scary. Like, wow, I am going to endure trials if I follow Jesus. But you don't need to fear if you've put your trust in Jesus, because God is with you in everything. How many of you are familiar, kids, teens, how many of you are familiar with Psalm 23? You guys know it's Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? David says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Kids, for why? For For you are with me. God is with those who put their trust in him. He protects us through trials. Not that he protects trials from happening to us, but he preserves us from ultimately experiencing harm in the midst of them. What about death, pastor? He brings us through death itself. I think it was Tim Keller who said, God doesn't protect us from evil. That's not his promise. His promise is to protect us from the evil of everything. Ultimately, God will be with you and bring you through death itself. What did Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. 
I have overcome the world. There is no trial that God can't or won't ultimately bring you through. And knowing this enables us to endure trials with hope and confidence. God is a master goldsmith. God is a master sculptor. It was Michelangelo who said about his famous David sculpture that as he stared at the block of untouched stone, he had a vision of David in his mind already, and then he just removed everything that wasn't David. Friends, God has a vision in his mind of your faith perfected, and he's carving away everything that isn't you. Think of these analogies and illustrations, chisels and hammer, heat and flame. The work of refinement may be painful, but that pain and those tears that come with that pain only last for the night. But joy comes in the morning. And that brings us to our fourth and final point, the resolution of suffering. Suffering, trials, and afflictions are temporary There is a day coming when trials will be no more. Peter's very clear about this. Look again at verse six. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Not indefinitely, not for all eternity. No, we will only be grieved by various trials for a little while. Peter says a little while. When When he says a little while, he isn't saying that every single trial will itself be short lived. Some trials may last years. Some may last your entire life. What he's saying is that even if we endure trials that last our entire lives, in comparison with what awaits, our sufferings are, how the Apostle Paul called it, light and momentary afflictions. That's an unbelievable statement, knowing how terrible and intense the suffering in the world was and still is, Paul was very familiar with it. Peter is very familiar with it. We're very familiar with it. But in comparison with what awaits, it's just a little while. It's a light and momentary affliction. And Peter tells us when this resolution to suffering will come. Look at verse 7 again. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are a perishable item. Their expiration date is the date when Jesus returns. On that day, Jesus will appear in great glory. Our endurance in the midst of suffering will also be tested and seen when Jesus appears in great glory with the angelic host arrayed in fine linen, coming on the clouds of heaven, prepared to judge Satan and finally put an end to all trials, suffering and hardship. And on that day, the Lord Jesus and the heavenly host of angels will receive us with great joy. I want you to look at what Peter is saying. Our endurance the tested genuineness of our faith, our endurance in the midst of trials, fueled by God's grace and protected by God's power, results in a purified and finally perfected faith that will be responded to by Jesus and the heavenly host with praise, glory, and honor. There are other places in Peter where the praise, glory, and honor will be given to God at Jesus' coming and for good and obvious reasons. But Peter is saying here, that we will receive praise, glory, and honor for the tested genuineness of our faith. We will finally hear that glorious commendation, 
well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, you have come to Mount Zion to thousands and thousands of angels joyfully gathering to receive you into God's glorious presence. The vision of that day that Peter is casting for us is like the finish, uh, finish line of a marathon where the crowd eagerly waits to joyfully receive and cheer for each runner as they finish the race. Friends, when Jesus returns, he is going to joyfully receive you and praise you for finishing the race. The tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise, glory, and honor. And what you and I need to do is skip to the end in our minds. And when you read books or watch movies, right, you don't want to skip to the end. You want to see or read everything that happens that prepares you for the end. But in the Christian life, you want to mentally live on that last day. It's in looking forward to that last day that we are motivated to continue the race. As many of you know, I ran the Baltimore Marathon last year. It was ridiculously hard. I'm not a runner. I trained for it as best I could, wanted to give it a shot, and it absolutely pushed me to my limits. First half of the marathon was good. Felt fresh. It's going to be no problem. I'm killing it. Running way faster than I should be running because uh, I felt so good. A little aches and pains, but I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to run through it. I'm just going to keep going, right? Just charge through any aches and pains that I felt. And then I hit the second half, and I got crushed, like absolutely crushed. It was brutal mentally, physically, emotionally. Passed one cop later in the race. And this is like so late in the race that when you came, come to the water tables, there's trash everywhere and there's no water left because you're so far behind everybody. You're like, please, we're the ones who need the most water. Those early guys, they don't need the water. And I passed a police officer and they're all, they're super kind. They're like, keep going. How are you doing? Like, hey, one just, he looked at me like, you okay? Kind of like, if you want to stand with me, I, I might be able to put you in my car and take you to the finish line because you don't look great. It got to the point where I hurt so bad that walking didn't even help. And that's a terrible place to be. When you're running, you're like waddling. You're like, if I walk, this will feel better. And then you walk and you're like, this doesn't feel better. Everything hurts. I kept my mind though, at that point, just fixed on the, the finish line. I knew once I got there, I would feel way better. And as awful as I felt towards the end, and I felt awful, it was amazing to me that in no time at all after finishing the race, I really did forget about how hard it was and how awful I felt during it. Marathons are an amazing illustration of the Christian life. It can be long and grueling, and there may be times when you just want to give up and give in. Satan wants you to live in that moment. Satan wants you to see there's a long race ahead of you. You're not making it right? He wants you to believe that it won't end if you're experiencing hardship, because if he can convince you that it won't end, he knows he can get you to give up. But friends, the revelation of Jesus Christ is coming. Jesus is coming. Trials are not eternal. Praise and glory and honor are eternal. 
Life in God's presence is eternal. Resting in the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit is eternal. When you get to that day and you look back on all that you've experienced, every trial that God sent your way, you will give him praise, glory, and honor for his perfect wisdom and his excellence in purifying and protecting your faith. Friends, just like Peter wants his audience to look forward to that day to motivate them to continue enduring hardship, we should do the same today. You want to mentally live on that last day. See yourself crossing that finish line, hearing the words of Jesus, commending your endurance and the tested genuineness of your faith. Though we will experience many trials, God is using them to purify our faith. And ultimately, our trials and hardships will come to an end when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray that you would come soon and very soon. If you choose not to come soon, but to delay, we pray that you would help us to keep our minds fixed on that day, remembering all that you've done for us and the glories that await us in your heavenly presence. We pray that you would receive all power and honor and glory today, that you be glorified in our hearts and minds. And we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.